We are blessed this morning to have uh, a friend of mine and a supervisor of Jonathan's here with us today. Dr. John York is presently from Nashville and from David Lipscomb University. He's been there for a long time now. Uh, I first met John when, when I was a student at Linfield College in Oregon before I ever transferred to Abilene Christian. Uh, I was a student, and I had a friend that was going to a school in Portland, Oregon, where John had just started teaching. And so I went to, to that school one day just to visit my friend. He was going to classes, and he said, why don't you come along to class with me? And, and uh, it was a Bible class, and I was really quite interested in studying the Bible. And I thought, sure, I'll, I'll go to this class. I'd never been to a, to a university kind of Bible class or Bible college class ever before in my life. Walked into this class, and John was teaching. And it just so happened that I'd, I'd preached once in my life at that point, and Robin had given me, just before I preached this sermon, Robin had given me a commentary on the book of Ephesians, because I was going to do some things from Ephesians. I've told this story before. There's a beautiful inscription at the beginning of that book that I still have on my shelf here in my office. And so I had one commentary. I had never been to a Bible class before in my life. I go into John's class, and he's talking. I think he was teaching the epistles or something. He starts talking about all the, the uh, commentaries that his students should use in preparing their papers or whatever it was, preparing assignments or something. And I listened to see if he was going to mention my commentary that I, that I had, and he never mentioned it. And so, so I raised my hand, and I said, you know, so what's the deal? You know, you didn't mention William Barclay's daily Bible study commentary on Ephesians. What's up with that? And John kind of looked like, yeah, you know, that's not really for scholars. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was, that was my introduction to John York, and I didn't think any more of him then than I do now. I, I've, it's never, I've never really gotten over it. Anyway, I, John then, a couple of years after that, John went back to Abilene Christian to do some more study. I ended up transferring to ACU, and I met him there, and uh, we went to grad school together, and it was a wonderful experience, and I just have loved and appreciated John York all his ministry years and teaching years in the Churches of Christ. He's now uh, supervising the D-Men program at David Lipscomb University, where Jonathan happens to be a student. Jonathan started his program before he ever uh, came here. And Jonathan has a major project to finish for his degree. And as I told the first service, we get to be his guinea pigs because we are the, those on whom Jonathan will be testing theory or, and doing interviews and, and just working things out in terms of his demon project. And John's here to talk to us uh, at the leadership team a little bit about all of that and how that might work. And then we get to, to participate with Jonathan in his quest. But this morning, we get to hear from John York uh, from David Lipscomb to talk to us about uh, prayer and some beautiful things that John wants to say about that. Brother? Thanks. So in my own defense, whoops, I'm supposed to go up here, aren't I? In, in my own defense, uh, that would have been when I was about 25 years old, and I was so much smarter then than I've ever been since which is how I could give that glib answer to you in that kind of setting, right? Uh, it, it's been downhill in terms of how much I think I know on almost any subject since then. It is delightful to be here in Calgary. My wife and I um, passed through here a few years ago. We'd done this big grand trip where we went to Banff and, and to Lake Louise and all those kinds of things, and we're uh, meandering back toward uh, home and and so this is my first time to actually spend any time here, and I am thrilled 
to be here and to have all the good reasons to be here. As, as, uh, as Kelly suggests, our, our history goes way back to Oregon days together uh, at, at Columbia and then at Abilene. Uh, when, when he was in Victoria, uh, BC, uh, he invited, uh, my wife and I and our little kids to come up there and I did a seminar at their church. I have such great fond memories of that experience. Um, and here's what I love most. I love the way in which you all and Canada have become home for them. I love the way in which they have become a part of the fabric of your lives. And, and that to me is such a gift. Because the truth of it in ministry is it's easier for ministers to come and go while everybody else stays. And I love it when the staying is a part of the life of the minister. And I, I think that's just a wonderful gift that you have brought in all of your settings. Uh, and I, I'm pleased to be here to say that on your behalf. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here to, uh, with Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan's circumstances in our program have, have always been, what should we say, Jonathan, awkward? Well, they, they've always been in the midst of strange circumstances, right? So that when you first came into the program, I mean, you're in the midst of, in, in Japan of, of all of the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami and the nuclear meltdown and all that kind of stuff, trying to figure that out, leaving home, leaving all the, all the insecurities that went with that to show up for two weeks in Nashville, uh, coming to the second one of those on your way to interview here for this job and the possibility of moving here, trying to do the last two residencies while you're trying to get settled here and figured out what life looks like here. And so more than anything else, I'm here to apologize to Michiko for doing all this damage to you in the midst of that and to say thank you, thank you, thank you for his absences not just his absences when his body was away, but especially his absences when his body has been there with you and his mind was elsewhere. Because that's very hard. And, and to do that with your children, to do all of the things that you have done, I'm deeply indebted. And I'm indebted to all of you for the way in which you have walked alongside him through the process. And as, as he intimated in the stick it to you line early, um, um, yes. He has a project coming up. And what I love about the difference in his program and what Kelly and I did, Kelly and I both did PhDs. And there's a lot of good things that have come from that. A lot of good things we've been able to share in church context. Uh, one of the things that Kelly and I share is this deep love for life at the intersection of the academy and the church. And, and so we got to share a lot of things. But our research and expertise was all about our developing a personal expertise where we could say, I know something about something that nobody else knows. And proving that to the people of our, of our academic guild so they would say, yes, this guy is really smarter about this subject than anybody else. But for all intents and purposes, there is a side of that degree that's always a me degree. It's always about me and my expertise. What separates the D-Men degree, the Doctor of Ministry degree, is it is always a we degree. It is embedded in the life of the ministry of the student. And so the papers that he writes, surprise, they have to do with the work that he's doing here. The project that he will do here at the end 
has to do with your life together, how to enhance that ministry and that life together, how to move you forward in your quest to be this mission statement in Calgary and the rest of the world. And so you become participants in this. This is going to be your education and your degree too. And therefore, the stick it to you part is you get to hold him accountable for all the good work that you all are going to do together. So you can ask him how our degree is coming along. Does that make sense? That's going to be his his next piece of the project, the last year of this. And so uh, I look forward to how that's going to go, but I look forward to to the outcomes, because they won't be just for the benefit of you all. They'll benefit other churches as well. They will be used for the glory of God in all kinds of settings that are similar to yours, where they can be used in healthy and helpful ways. I'm also honored to be here today in the midst of a study on prayer that you're doing. I, I told the first service I had the chance to uh, to get online and listen to some of the work Kelly's been doing on prayer and these core value classes that he's teaching on the Holy Spirit and on on grace and and they sent me texts for this week, which will be a part of your small group study. And 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 they're very powerful texts, asking the question, what's what's God's part in our prayer lives? And so I want to begin by reading these core texts for today from Romans eight and Philippians four. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope is not that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then from Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. While Kelly and Robin have been living the bulk of their lives north of the border, I've been living my life south, not just south of the border, but in the deep south. I've been in Nashville, Tennessee for 24 of the last 25 years. And the truth of it is, I spend a lot of time now not knowing how to pray as I ought. And the peace that passes all understanding is, is a, a distant pipe dream. We live... Perhaps you've heard this. We live in anxious times south of the border for a host of reasons. And while I can't give a national apology, I can, I can, I can say how sorry I am that you all are having to watch this sensationalized reality show on a daily basis. 
in which there is so much turmoil. You'd have thought that we'd have made progress with civil rights and then even having an African-American president. But the truth of it is, as you well know, race is now this predominant, dominant, nasty, ill-willed conversation all of the time. And the only respite from it is when we have crises that are even bigger. It's a curious thing that the only time that language has fallen out of first use favor is when we've had hurricanes the last two months. Or even worse, a mass shooting, worse than our history. And there's all the talk of health care and this and that and all of these things about immigration and walls and the ways in which we are going to be great again. And fake news, usually announced by the person who has offered us more fake news in the last 18 months than anybody ever in history. And I'm sorry. Because it all filters up this way. I couldn't watch your news this morning without most of it filtering up this way, right? And it's a struggle. It's a struggle for us all. And when it's not this kind of political, sensationalized, uh, ongoing debate that, that constantly turns human beings into issues and then treats those issues in some kind of negative impact way, this othering process in which you never quite see the face of the other person, you just see the problem, and you keep naming the other as problem. In the face of that, I'd love to tell you that church is a sanctuary in the South, but it's not. Now, we don't talk much in the South about all the stuff that's going on outside with our churches, but churches are not exactly a sanctuary anymore because there's not that many people in them anymore. When I moved to Nashville in the early 1990s, it was commonplace. We have steeples on every other corner down there, you know. It's, it's a beautiful place in that regard. And, and 70 to, to 75% of the people in Nashville would have gone to church on any given Sunday. Now that figure is closer to 30 or 35%, realistically. It used to be that that faculty, uh, the, the, the student uh, people, people who worked with students on our campus wondered how many of our students were not going to church on Sunday. Now they wonder which ones are. Because the assumption is most are not. The institution of church in North America in general, but particularly where I have lived, where we thought of ourselves as the buckle of the what? Bible belt, right? The institution of church is struggling to figure it out when the nuns now are growing much more rapidly than church attendance anywhere. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-S, right? People who have no religious affiliation, no desire to. The distance that young people feel from institutional church is getting worse, not by the decade, but by the year. And so all of those problems come along. And, and that's not even to mention the, the shooting in, in our own backyard at a Church of Christ just a couple of weeks ago, where all of that, all of that evil 
enters into our own circumstances in such a powerful way. And so when it comes to talking about prayer, when it comes to talking about peace that passes understanding, when it comes to realizing how little I have to say that matters, and then when it comes to the even more difficult thing for me personally, which is telling the truth that so much of my prayer life historically has been more about performance and practice than actual conversation and meaningful life experience with God. Now, that's a whole other story. The number of meal prayers I've uttered in my life that were meaningless. The number of prayer times in church where I have been the prayer and I was praying for, but not really, I was praying to. You've you've experienced those prayers, right? The ones that become the sermons as we're talking to ourselves. How, how do we make sense of this? And, and I've been helped greatly, to be honest, this week with these texts because these texts suggest a very different framework. Romans 8 brings together all of the core values you've already been talking about. Grace, Holy Spirit, and prayer. And it's a very powerful bringing together of everything Paul's been doing to this point in the book of Romans. You remember how it begins with this great announcement at the beginning of of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life And peace, there's our word peace again. For this reason, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's the good news. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, through the, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. Do you, do you hear the triune God at work there? God the Father, God the Redeemer, God the Spirit, God the Enabler, God the Indweller, the way in which Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, God working, Christ working, Spirit working, and the center, the epicenter of all of this work is what? Us humans. Those of us who have been claimed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those of us who have taken on that death and resurrection ourselves. The spirit that dwells in you. So he says, brothers and sisters, we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live by the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit's work in us, then, is to do what? To transform us into the people of life, not death. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received a spirit of adoption. And now our text, when we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. As a professor said years ago when I was a student at Columbia, and he was 85 years old at the time, God is closer to us than the blood in our veins. You see, that's an incredible promise. It's, it's, it's easy for us to create a world in which God is himself othered. God is away from us. We have these polite conversations with the, the infinitely other God that is out there almost as object. And we can talk about Jesus as a separate entity. We can talk about the Spirit as a yet separate entity. But to pull that triune God together into intersubmissive love and to say it is that God that has decided to come and dwell in us, to make God's home in us. Now we're talking not about off there somewhere. We're not talking about conversation off out there somewhere. We're talking about presence, ongoing, all the time presence, transforming us from the inside. And and I, I, I received insight this week, for myself at least, about this language of suffering. I never know what to do with that, provided we suffer as he suffered, in order that we may share in his glory. What is that suffering? I've thought about it as persecution. I guess I got to go persecute, be persecuted somewhere. That whole victim language, you know, to see the cross event only as the victimization of Jesus, I think is to miss the point. To see the cross event and to talk about the pain of Jesus, the cruelty of Jesus toward Jesus, is to miss the point. To talk about the suffering of Jesus and only start with the cross event is to miss the point. Here's what, what, what I was helped with this week, and that is the suffering of Jesus is not about what he was victimized in at the end. The suffering of Jesus was the way in which Jesus so loved the world that he took on the world's suffering. If we just changed one word, sin, and made that the word suffering... And said, he took on our sin. He took on our suffering. His love made him see the suffering of every other human being and say, I need to fix that in you. The suffering of Jesus may be best expressed on the cross when he says these words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now imagine the call to participate in that. Imagine the call to participate in that suffering love. Imagine the way in which you can't other another human being anymore because you are too empathically, too sympathetically, too lovingly seeking to enter in and bring transformation and life and wholeness to every other human being. 
All of the things that we call problems can't be problems if it's image of God, human being, wholeness that we have been called to offer to others as we have received ourselves. To be loved by God, to have God choose to make God's home in us, to have spirit presence as a constant, to know that the cry, Abba, Father, comes out of us not just by us, but by the Spirit of God within us. To know that when we have run out of words, the Spirit's activity has only begun. It's powerful. It's a game changer. It's a way for Christians in my world to get off of this sensationalized reality show and into the messiness of helping in the suffering. Of loving enough to bring wholeness. And now we can start talking about peace and the God of peace and even rejoicing. Now, now we can hear the groans of the world longing for all of the world to be recreated. Longing for the groaning to end. Now we can be part of the reconciling whole. Because, as he says, he considers the suffering of this age not worth comparing to what? The glory that is to be revealed. And so we live with great hope. Now, we haven't seen it yet. That's why we call it hope. We live with the invitation to love the world as Jesus loved the world. And that will be to suffer with the world. The other piece of that, I suppose, is to understand that there's going to be some inter-suffering going on as the hatred and the othering that I've been doing myself is being rooted out by that spirit. That's painful. You know, when you've when you got a, a lot at stake in being better than somebody else, when there's power and place, when I started naming my own white male privilege, that's not been fun. It's it's eating me alive, and the sad tra- tragic truth is it's eaten a lot of people around me alive. And so to be transformed, to have that spirit presence, now that's to cry, Abba, Father. That's to beg that there is something beyond my words. That can be Jesus not just to me, but Jesus through me to the world. To be Jesus to you, and not Jesus just to you, but through you to the world. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we need your groans for our world. I need your groans for my world, not just the world of Nashville, Tennessee, or the Deep South, or all of the United States of America. I need you for me and my relationship with my wife and my kids and my students. I need your sighs to speak. And Father, for us all, 
May the intimacy of your presence grow within us. May we believe deeply that you are that close to us. May we know you that well. That you may work that transforming love in us and through us for the sake of all creation. Through your Son, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.